there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. Years ago, I was living in a very out-of-the-way place in the eastern jungle of Ecuador in a small clearing, probably a little smaller than this room, a clearing in which there were about six houses. My house was one of them. They were all alike. None of them had any walls or any floors or any furniture. I lived in a house exactly like the Indians, thatched roof, six poles with a thatch roof on top, and strung between two of the poles was my hammock, in which I slept and in which I sat during the day. And underneath my hammock was a split bamboo, quote, bed, unquote, just a slab of split bamboo on the ground on which my daughter slept. She was three years old. Beside her bed and sort almost under my hammock was a fire, which we kept going 24 hours a day. And when I would wake early in the morning, and I mean early, because it was the custom of the people in this clearing to start their day somewhere between 2 and 3 o'clock in the morning. Now, that makes very good sense, you know, if you go to bed at a sensible hour, which these people had the good sense to do. Instead of coming home from a hard day's work and eating supper and then trying to keep your eyes open and be scintillating in a social way until you're exhausted, these people came home, ate supper, and went to bed. It was always dark by 6.30. 365 days a year, because in Ecuador we were right on the equator, and there was no difference in the length of the days. So if you go to bed at 6.30, you're going to wake up somewhere between 2.30 and 3. And usually the thing that woke me was singing. These people had songs with a maximum of three notes. Some of the songs had only two. But the one I remember best was a three-note song, and it went like this. Wouldn't you like to join me? (laughs) Well, I've had mercy on you. I could have sung 72 repetitions, as they often did before they went on to verse (laughs) 2. Etc. And then they would start their social hour, which involved conversation, as it would in our country. And one of the wonderful things about their life was that they didn't have to get out of bed in order to join in the social hour because there were no walls on any of the houses. And the houses were actually, some of them, closer together than any two tables here. My house joined the roof of the house next door, so I could look down from my hammock and see the women in the house next door in their hammocks beginning to cook breakfast without getting out of bed. All they had to do was reach out of the hammock and set the leftovers from last night on the fire. And conversations would begin and would be relayed all the way around the clearing. 
The people that I was living with were called Aukas, A-U-C-A. These were Stone Age people. They had no metal implements until we got there. They wore absolutely no clothes except a piece of string. Now, I don't mean a G-string. I mean a piece of string around their hips. If they wanted to be very dressed up, they would wear a piece of string around their upper arm and occasionally around their thigh. All we knew about them a few years before was that they killed strangers. And these people, of course, had never seen, most of the people had never seen a stranger. They had never seen a stranger of any color, let alone a white person. I was a giant to these people. I was head and shoulders taller than the tallest woman, a head taller than the tallest man. My hair, they said, looked like palm fiber. My eyes looked like a jaguar's. They'd never seen anything human with anything but black eyes. My skin was a pitiful, washed-out color to them. And everything that I did was worthy of observation and commentary and mostly great hilarity. And when I would open my eyes in the morning, there would be two pairs of black eyes looking down from a platform in the house next door, two pairs of black eyes that belonged to two teenage boys who were waiting for that exciting moment when this foreigner, this freak in their midst, opened her jaguar eyes. And when I did, they would make the first announcement of the day, which was, which means... She's awake. <laughs> and that thrilling piece of news would be le- relayed all the way around the clearing. <laughs> and then I would get out of my hammock and unwrap myself from the blanket in which I slept, which was another one of my peculiarities. It was very cold in the jungle. We were at an altitude of about a thousand feet, so it was cold at night, could be hot in the daytime, but not blistering hot. And I had to sleep in all of my clothes plus a blanket, and kept my fire going beside my hammock and was just barely comfortable. These people had no blankets, no clothes, but they said as long as their feet were warm, they were warm. So they strung their hammocks like the spokes of a a wheel around the fire, and their feet were more or less in the smoke. So when I took my blanket off and hung it up underneath my thatched roof, then I would take out of a rubber bag a small transistor transceiver radio with which I could contact the Missionary Aviation Base. We were three days by trail and canoe from the closest mission station. We had no contact except with this little radio, and we received supplies by parachute from a small plane. So each morning I would attempt to make contact, and when I took this little radio out of its rubber bag, then the second announcement would go out, which was, which means, there she goes, with that radio again. <laughs> Apeninga, meaning the talking thing, a word that they had made up, of course, for the radio. And as I carried the radio across the clearing, every step, I had to carry it across the clearing to, in order to attach it to an aerial on the far side, and each step would be accompanied by sound effects. Eh, 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 eh. <laughs> Now try that on your next door neighbor. (laughs) 
as you see him walk from the back door to the garage, stick your head out the kitchen window and go, eh, 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 eh. See if he knows what to do with that. I didn't, and I tried various things. I tried shifting my gait and throwing everybody off, but after a couple of days, you realize that you're a freak and a liability and a nonstop source of entertainment, and so you have to settle for that. Now, two years before my daughter and I were living there, three years before, actually, these Indians became aware that of the many airplanes that they saw fly over, and there were great uh, passenger planes that crossed South America that went over their territories so far up that they looked about the same size as a bird, but occasionally they would hear the noise, and they knew that there were these birds that flew very high. But when a small yellow plane, which looked like a very big bird, flew low over their territory, they got very excited. They got more excited when this little bird began to eject all sorts of interesting things. These white men, whose faces they could see in the plane because the plane came so low, began dropping gifts to these Indians, things like aluminum pots and spoons and knives and glass beads and mirrors, axe heads, machetes, whatever they thought these Indians might like, knowing that they were Stone Age people, these people were dropping. And each week, when the little plane, the yellow bird, as they called it, would come, the Indians would run out and wave the gifts that they'd gotten the week before, indicating that they were very happy with these gifts and they would like to receive some more. And so they received more and more. And over a period of 15 weeks, they began to argue about whether or not this yellow bird was a demon or an angel, whether these white men were good or bad, why were they doing this, and they began to invite these white men to come down, of course, with gestures like this, not having any idea what it takes to put a yellow bird like that on the ground. They built a platform about six feet off the ground and about six, six feet square that they thought would be just the right size for that bird to sit down on. Then one day they realized that these white men had invaded their territory, actually were on the ground at the edge of their territory. The men had come in in their little plane, landed on a sand strip of the Kurarai River, put up a treehouse, all of these things the Alcas observed from back in the forest, where they were hidden, of course, and arguing back and forth, most of the people said they are friendly, we can trust them, but there were always those who said, no, we've never received anything but ill treatment from people with white faces. And over the past years, not in their memory, but they had heard these stories from their fathers and grandfathers, many atrocities had been committed against these people by white men who were looking for oil and rubber and gold. And so they said, no, we can never trust them. And so the argument went on and on. Finally, one very brave man and two Alka women actually stepped out of the forest to the camp where these five men were. They couldn't understand a word these five men said, nor could the men understand them, but they received the food that they gave them, hamburger on a bun, can you imagine, ketchup and mustard, lemonade, and then the man, by gestures, indicated that he would like a ride in the yellow bird. And he was given that ride. 
everything went beautifully. He was flown over his own village, and the people saw their friend up there, saw that all was well, and the man actually came back with his two friends. This Alka man returned after spending a whole afternoon with these five strangers, and two days later, they decided to spear the men to death. Well, of course, as you've guessed, the five men included my husband, Jim Elliott, and for weeks and months, we had been praying that God would open a door for the gospel to be taken to these people who never heard the name of Jesus Christ. My husband and I had been working together with a tribe called Quechuas, very friendly Indians. We were reducing their language to writing and translating the Bible for them. But we knew that the Alcas had never had a missionary. And so we began to pray that the Lord would make it possible for somebody to go there. And so he had. God had answered prayer after prayer after prayer for clear weather, safe flying, friendly indications from the Indians on the ground, the ability to drop the gifts where the Indians could find them and not way out in the forest somewhere. And it's a pretty neat trick to drop something out of an airplane and make it fall just where you want it to fall. And God had answered all these prayers. We had prayed that God would enable us to locate a sand strip on which they could land the plane. That prayer was answered just dozens and dozens of prayers. And the five men, each of them, was dedicated completely to whatever God wanted them to do. You can imagine how earnestly we five wives prayed for the safety of our husbands. If any of you had relatives in the Gulf War, you know how earnestly we prayed. And on the evening before the men actually flew into the edge of Alka territory, they had sung a hymn, We rest on thee, our shield and our defender. All we knew was that on the Sunday afternoon following that friendly contact on Friday, and we had been keeping up with the men by radio, Sunday afternoon, Nate, the pilot, had flown his little yellow bird again over the Alka houses, radioed back to his wife, we've seen ten Indians headed in the direction of our camp. We're thrilled. We'll have a meeting this afternoon. We'll call you at 4.30. At 4.30, there was nothing but silence. The following morning, another pilot was able to fly over the place where the little yellow bird had landed. He radioed back to us that he had found the plane stripped of its fabric. It was not possible for him to land, of course, because the plane was sitting right in the middle of the sand strip. There was no sign of any of the men. As I stood in my jungle house, the house that Jim had built, and got the word that nothing had been heard from the men for more than 12 hours, and that the plane had been stripped. God brought to my mind then, immediately, the words from Isaiah 43, verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, neither will the flame kindle upon you, for I am the Lord your God. It was five days before a ground party was able to make their way through the jungle to the site. And on that fifth day, of course, by radio, we learned that all five of the men had been speared to death. And God brought to my mind then a poem that I had memorized years before called St. Paul. And that poem ends with these words, So through life, death, through sorrow, and through sinning, Christ shall suffice me, for he hath sufficed.
Christ is the end, for Christ was the beginning. Christ the beginning, for the end is Christ. Now that's a 20th century story. It's not unusual, is it, in the annals of faith. And we have in that magnificent chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews a great gallery of heroes of the faith, most of which we're very familiar with, and I'm not going to take you through the 11th chapter of Hebrews. It's a long one, but just let me remind you of some of those who are mentioned there. The chapter begins with the statement that faith means putting our full confidence in things we hope for. It means being certain of things we cannot see. And I would say that's one of the significant differences between us who are Christians and the rest of the world. We put our faith in things we cannot see. And then it goes on to describe what faith is. And faith, according to this chapter, is clearly not a feeling. You know, it's unfortunate that the world a lot of times thinks that faith is sort of a religious feeling. You know, when people say to me, you're really religious, aren't you? I say, no, I'm not really very religious at all. Because what they usually mean by that is you feel good about God, or you have these wonderful visions, or you you have a mood that makes you feel spiritual. And that doesn't really happen to me, not very often. But the faith that's described in this chapter is action. It is never a feeling. It is never a mood. It says Abel made a better sacrifice to God than Cain. That was because of his faith. Noah, on receiving God's warning of impending disaster, did what? What did Noah do? It wasn't anything very spiritual, was it? He had to get out his hammer and his saw and his boards and his nails, and he had to do what looked to his neighbors like the most outrageous project in the world. Obedience was the proof of his faith. And then Abraham obeyed the summons to go out to a place which he would eventually possess. Sarah gained physical vitality to become a mother despite her great age. All these whom we have mentioned, says the writer, maintained their faith, but died without actually receiving God's promises. And then when by faith Abraham, when put to the test, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. And it goes on talking about Moses uh, Rahab the prostitute, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. Through their faith, these men conquered kingdoms, ruled injustice, and proved the truth of God's promises. They shut the mouths of lions. You've all heard that story. They quenched the furious blaze of fire. Wonderful things. Escaped death itself. From weaklings, they became strong men and mighty warriors. They routed armies of foreigners. Women received their dead, raised to life again. While... Others were tortured. And don't you forget those others. All in the same chapter. And some of them, get this, were flogged, bound in prison, killed by stoning, and sawn in two. Did you ever see any pictures of that in your holy pictures or your Sunday school lessons? We saw Daniel in the lion's den, didn't we? And we saw Abraham and Moses, but we did not see the people that got sawn in two. But it says, all these won a glowing testimony to their faith. Now, what was the proof of their faith? It was obedience. And if you and I, my dear brothers and sisters this morning, are going to be fishers of men, if we are going to draw others into the net of the gospel... We have got to do something besides talk about it and sing about it and pray about it. 
We all love to talk about it and sing about it and pray about it, don't we? We've proved that this morning. But those people out there that do not know the reality of those invisible things that shape our lives, they're looking at your visible life. And they're saying, well, old John, you know, he talks about being religious and he goes to church every Sunday and all this. I don't know what difference it makes in his life. He's just like the rest of us. Well, what about Susie? Well, she talks big and she has a prayer meeting in her house and she goes to Mass every day and she does this and that and the other thing. But does it really make any difference in the laundry room or the kitchen or in the office or the schoolroom or the workshop? Now, that's what I want us to think about this morning. We're meant to be witnesses. And a witness is somebody who has seen something. I used to spend those long silent, very dark evenings when I was living with the Alcas, sitting in my hammock, fanning my fire, meditating, thinking, praying. I couldn't read and study because I didn't have any light most of the time besides a fire. We were two, three days away from the nearest mission station, as I told you. A candle was a pretty precious thing. Batteries were out of the question. So I had a lot of time to think and pray and meditate. I never did learn to go to sleep at 6.30. And one evening when I was meditating, I was thinking about the verse in Isaiah 43, verse 10, that says, You are my witnesses and my servant whom I have chosen, that you might know and believe me and understand that I am he. And all of a sudden that hit me. If God had asked me to write a verse about Witnessing, I would have said, you are my witnesses, that they might know and believe me. And here I was supposedly a missionary living with these people whose language I couldn't understand. I couldn't make clay pots. I didn't know how to weave hammocks. I didn't know how to find wild honey. I could not catch fish with my hands. I didn't know how to plant manioc. And they were always insisting that I try these things. And of course I tried them and I made an awful mess of the clay pot. I got the hammock strings all tangled up. I never did succeed in catching a fish with my hands, although my three-year-old daughter learned it in about a week. Talk about humiliation. I couldn't speak this language. I mean, if somebody says to you, would you be able to repeat that? And they wouldn't say it twice in the same way. So they were always saying, can you do this? Try this. Can you do that? Do this. Do the other thing. And finally, they just threw up their hands and they said, what do you do? I didn't do anything that made any sense at all to them. I walked around with a notebook in my hand and a pen and tried to write down things like, You try writing that down, how much would you get down on the first run? So I was feeling very helpless, feeling as if I would never get this language that my daughter had learned in a month. Three-year-old child, have you ever seen anything like the miraculous language learning power of a child, I watch my grandchildren now and I'm just absolutely mystified by the way those children learn to speak exactly the way their parents speak. If you've got a southern accent, your children are going to have a southern accent. If you have a Massachusetts accent, they're going to have a Massachusetts accent. And my grandchildren, the older ones, grew up in Mississippi and they said things like, I'm going to go get in my bed. <laughs> well, they didn't get that from their grandmother. <laughs> Anyway, she learned the language, and here I was, helpless. I couldn't speak a word. This was a time when my Christianity had jolly well better make some kind of a difference besides talk. And so God was saying to me, you are my witness that you might know and believe me. 
I want you to learn to know me. A witness is somebody who knows something. Now, how do we learn to know God? How do we learn? Well, we can read books and we can study the Bible and we can go to church. We can do all the things, all those outward things that anybody can do. But there's one thing that is absolutely essential. And we find that in John 14. Jesus says, every man who knows my commandments and obeys them is the man who really loves me. And every man who really loves me will himself be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and make myself known to him. Clear as crystal, isn't it? We cannot know him without obedience. It's when we start doing one thing that God says to do, and we quit doing one thing that he says to quit doing, that the reality of our faith is demonstrated. When God said to Noah, build an ark, what did Noah do? He built an ark. What could be plainer? When God said to Abraham, get out, Abraham got out. He didn't know where he was going. Well, you are my witnesses. And you and I are responsible to give evidence. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, not just Sunday that we know something, that we have seen someone, and that he has changed our lives. Now, I'm sure I'm speaking to a lot of people here who, could, who have demonstrated this. And you know people whose lives have been visibly altered. Well, thank God for that. Thank God for every tiniest difference. Christians are people whose lives don't make any sense, except in terms of eternity. Now, isn't that true? You know, Paul said, I'm a fool for Christ's sake. And he said, the preaching of the cross, what does that cross mean up there? What does it mean to a non-Christian? Well, it's just something that Catholics have in their churches and their houses, and they bow down, and they wear them around their necks and all this. I don't know what it means. And Paul said, they won't understand it. It's foolishness to the world. But when those five men died... Swarms of reporters came to that little jungle base, the aviation base, and they began to grill us widows. What is this all about? What the blankety-blank were those guys doing in savage territory? Were they fools? Were they stupid? Was it an adventure? Were they looking for heroics? What was it? And I can remember trying to say to them, look, I will tell you the truth but it's not going to make any sense to you. They were not looking for heroics. They weren't stupid. They knew very well what the possibilities were. They were under orders to an invisible master. Jesus Christ said, if you want to be my disciple, you give up your right to yourself and you take up the cross and follow me. Do we imagine that we can take up the cross and escape Suffering? Of course not. And every one of those five men had long before that particular Sunday afternoon when they were speared to death made up their minds that they were not their own. You know, the world is telling us every single day, you're your own person. It's your body. It's your life. 
You have a right to do anything you want with it. If it feels good, do it. If it doesn't feel good, don't do it. Have you ever heard that kind of stuff? That is rubbish, isn't it? I read in 1 Corinthians 6.20, you are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. I do not have a right to do what I want with this body. And those men had said, Lord, I'm all yours. Do anything you want with me. And to take you all the way back to 1947, when Jim Elliott, my husband, was a student on the same college campus where I was, he had written in my yearbook, he would signed his autograph over his picture, as we did in those days, and underneath it he put a scripture reference. Well, I had to race to get my Bible and quickly thumb through that Bible to find 2 Timothy 2.4. I didn't know it by heart, and lo and behold, here was what Jim Elliott had written in my book. A soldier on active service will not become entangled in civilian affairs. He must be wholly at his commanding officer's disposal. That's the scripture, that's the description of a soldier, isn't it? He is not his own. He's not doing his own thing. He doesn't have a right to do this or that or the other thing if it happens to feel good. And he doesn't have any input. He is under authority. And when Jim wrote that in my yearbook, everything that I knew about Jim Elliott, I liked up to that point. And when I read that, I thought, this is the most important thing I could ever know about a man. He's made up his mind that he belongs to Jesus Christ. Nowadays, we find young people constantly asking that tired question, who am I? I don't know who I am, and I don't care, because God knows, and someday he's going to give me a white stone with a name on it that nobody knows except him and me. But until then, I'm going to direct my energies toward knowing God, and I figure that in the process of learning to know God, I'm going to get to know more than I can stand about myself. I don't want to know any more than that. But Jim Elliott had said, I am under orders. I am disposable. Disposable. Expendable for God. So, in a sense, although it was a shock when I knew that Jim was dead, it wasn't a surprise. I knew very well that to follow Jesus Christ might cost your life, literally. Now, I don't suppose that I'm speaking to very many people this morning that are going to bleed to death on the point of a savage Indian spear. There might be somebody in this room that's going to have a violent death for the sake of the gospel. But what is it to which God is calling us ordinary folks? We who get up in the morning and eat breakfast in a comfortable house and go out to work or stay home and work, go to school, go to a job, come home, eat supper, go to bed. What is God asking? The answer is obedience. If you love me, do what I say. Your word must be backed up by your life. And your life is lived out in action. Action. What is the difference? I'm always asking this question as I travel around the country. What kind of a difference does Jesus Christ make in your life? Now, just last week, my husband and I were in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Who should be seated next to me at the speaker's table? She was not a speaker, but she was a special guest that had just come on the spur of the moment. She was sitting right next to me. The widow of Dr. Mark Connolly, who had been killed after the war ended in Saudi Arabia. 
Christian doctor was in a jeep. He saw a wounded Iraqi. He jumped out of the jeep to help that wounded Iraqi, and he was blown up by a landmine. And his lovely young wife was sitting next to me at the table. And as we talked, she gave me her testimony of how God sustained her. She said, you know, Elizabeth, I've been reading your books for years. She said, I know how you lost your first two husbands. And she said, I know that Mark was ready to meet the Lord. And I thought of how Jim Elliott had written in his journal when he was 22 years old, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And so as we struggled to try to explain to reporters what this was all about, and one Jewish photographer from Life magazine, he had never heard the word missionary. He did not know one thing about the gospel. In fact, he said to me, where do you get this information about Jesus? Now, mind you, this is a very intelligent New York Hungarian Jew. I didn't know what he meant for a while. And finally, I said, well, it's in the New Testament. And he said, that's part of the Bible. And I said, yes. And he said, oh, so that's where you learned all this stuff about Jesus. Yes. So he shook his head one day and he said, you know, all these missionaries around here, they're, they're trying to make a Christian out of me. And they were, you know, they were handing him books and tracts and they were talking to him about the Lord and all that. And he was just, it just blew his mind. But I had given him some of Jim's journal pages. And he came to me with these pan pages in his hand and he was just sort of speechless. He said, finally said, They'll never make a Christian out of me with those books. But you might with the journal of Jim Elliot. Now, what was the difference? See, the theories don't make any sense. There is no way that anybody's going to understand this invisible level on which you and I live. The level on which we interpret everything that happens down here. But it will make sense if they see a man who is honest in business. A woman who is submissive to her husband. Now, may I see the hands of you women here this morning who were born submissive? <laughs> Two hands. Obviously, most of us weren't. I can assure you that there's not one submissive Adam in my entire makeup. But my Bible tells me that I am to be submissive to Lars Gren. Now, Lars Gren is a whole lot taller than I am, a whole lot stronger than I am. He's a lot better looking than I am. He's a whole lot smarter than I am in a lot of ways. But he's not always right. <laughs> and if I think that he's making a big mistake, that's when that word submission has some teeth in it. Obviously, I don't have to submit to him if I'm agreeing with him. It's when I don't agree with him. Now, that's just one little point, and I'm sure some of your hackles have already raised on that, and you don't want to hear any more about it, and I'm not going to say any more about it. I'm just telling you what my Bible tells me. The student in school who comes to me and says, well, how do I find the will of God? Well, I ask him, first of all, what do you really want? Do you want the will of God? Well, they're not really sure about that, but if they think maybe it might be nice, might... Then I say, well, you're a student, aren't you? Yes. What's that got to do with it? Well, why don't you quit plagiarizing? Why don't you quit cheating? Why don't you start doing your half of the room in the dormitory? 
Why don't you start loving people, being respectful to your professors? That's the kind of a difference Jesus Christ ought to be making in our lives. If we're going to be fishers of men, we must demonstrate day in and day out the reality of our faith, the invisible realities, love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. They're the fruits of the Spirit, aren't they? And God wants to see that in what my old teacher used to say, shoe leather. I want to see Christianity in shoe leather. And she used to say to us, don't go around with a Bible under your arm if you didn't sweep under the bed. This was in boarding school. Now, one of the rules was we had to sweep the room every day with a broom. We didn't have any vacuum cleaners. If you didn't sweep under the bed, if you didn't keep the rules, in other words, if you're being disobedient in the little things that are that are your job, I don't want to see you with a Bible under your arm. The reality of our faith will be tested in the hidden place where you don't think anybody's looking. God's looking, isn't he? Now, suppose we were somebody came in here and said, okay, all the, everybody that's a Christian, stand up. I would suppose everybody in the room would stand up. And then you find out that there are trucks out there ready to take you to torture chambers because you stood up. But between here and the door, you have a chance to change your mind. As somebody has said, uh, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be sufficient evidence to convict you? Thousands of lives have been affected by the testimony of those five men. There's never a place that we go that I don't have more than one person, and somebody has already done this this morning, come up and tell me of how the life of Jim Elliott or one of those five men has, has had an impact in their lives. There was a detective from Belfast, Ireland. There was a subway policeman from New York City. There was a railroad engineer in Canada. There was a young Marine by the name of Chuck Swindoll, who many years ago was at a crossroads in his own spiritual life. Somebody gave him Shadow of the Almighty, the biography of Jim Elliott, and he said, it turned my life around. And through Chuck Swindoll, literally million hear the gospel every day. Some of you have heard him on the radio, I'm sure. And so it goes on and on, the ripple effect. Now, Jim Elliott could never have known how he was going to be a fisher of men. He thought that God was going to bring some Alka Indians to Christ through his testimony. Obviously, those men never get, never spoke a word about the gospel to the Alkas. They were killed before they had a chance. And when later I learned the language, I said to my Alka friends who had done this, why did you do it? And they said, we thought they were cannibals. We thought they had come to eat us. But God and his sovereign will knew that out of the death of those men, there would be limitless ripple effect that would never have happened if they hadn't died. Are you disposable for God? Are you prepared to pay a price, even if it's only being thought very weird? You know, Catholics, for one thing, they are weird because they're against abortion. And in this day and age, imagine standing up and being counted on a stupid thing like that. There are all kinds of ways in which we're weird, in which our lives don't make any sense, and we don't like to be thought peculiar. It's not comfortable. How many times do you hear people say, I don't know, I just don't feel very comfortable with that, and I wonder where we ever got the idea that discipleship is supposed to be comfortable. 
Jesus said, give up your right to yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. And those fishers have got to demonstrate by their actions, by the way you husbands love your wives. How is a husband supposed to love his wife as Christ loved the church? Can you do that? That means sacrifice. By the way we wives love and submit to and respect and honor our husbands. By the way children obey their parents. By the way parents raise their children. In the office, in the kitchen, in the workplace, in the world, as well as in church. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms.